You should have an outline there before you or in the bulletin. And you can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, and we're in chapter 16. If you're joining us today, if you're visitors, you're just at the end. You, you missed all the stuff we went through <laughs> for a couple of years, but that's good. We're glad you're here. And so we're, we're finishing up um, 1 Corinthians, and we're starting kind of the downhill slide here with chapter 16. And so today we'll just be looking at um, the first four verses of chapter 16. But if you've ever been on a trip and you visited someone or you were going away on a trip yourself and uh, you were leaving and you're in your car and you're pulling out of the driveway, have you ever been at that situation where you're pulling out of the driveway, oh, don't forget this, and one more thing, and then one more thing, and you keep on going on and on because you kind of don't want to part ways. It's almost like that's what Paul is doing here in chapter 16. He's unloaded on us for 15 chapters, an incredible amount of theology. Uh, The most recent chapter, chapter 15, we spent several weeks in because it spoke of not only just the resurrection of Christ, but our own resurrection and what we have to look forward to one day. And it's almost comical how he just changes in midstream. And uh, we're going to be looking at that today, how he ends this, this wonderful book. And he moves from the doctrinal to the practical in one fell sweep. Uh, John MacArthur says this of chapter 16. I'll just quote him. He says, the 15th chapter was so grandiose. It was so magnificent. It was so far beyond anything that we could ever dream He's talking about the resurrection. He's talking about glorified bodies. He's talking about the voice of God calling the dead out of graves. He's talking about great transformation. He's talking about the day when our bodies will become like Jesus Christ. The day when the trumpet sounds. The day when heaven explodes upon our reality. The day when every imagination is fulfilled And far beyond the day when we cry, O death, where is thy sting? O death, where is thy victory? And then he says, verse 1, now concerning the collection. (laughs) It's like, wow, where did that come from? Concerning the collection. But that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, He brings us rather abruptly from the... From the future glories of heaven right back to this earth in present life. And it kind of shows us that the life to come is not so far unrelated to the life that we're living each and every day. Um, We've all heard the saying, oh, that guy's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. You ever heard that? Um, Whenever God gives us a glimpse of glory, a glimpse of the end times, a glimpse of something so magnificent as being risen from the dead and spend all eternity with Christ in glory. Whenever he does that, he does it for a purpose. He does it for the purpose of helping us live more faithfully here on earth. Uh, We're not just to sit on our hands and do nothing and wait for the Lord's return. 
That's not what we're called to do as believers. Some believers think that. I hear a lot of believers nowadays, especially praying, oh Lord, please come back quick. Please, please, today. And I often think, what about the people that aren't saved yet? Do you have any concern for them? What are you doing to reach them? Or are you just so concerned about you being in a bad spot that you're, you're just willing to get out of here? It's kind of a selfish attitude, really. We are not as believers just to be all about the pie in the sky mentality. There's a very practical um, teaching here, a very practical side that Paul wants us to understand. And he does it in the closing comments here, beginning in chapter 16. He brings everything that he's taught us right back to earth into our everyday living out of our Christian life. Even Peter does this in 2 Peter chapter 3.14 after he gives us a very sobering picture of the end times. But in verse 14 he says, Therefore, based on what I just told you, what's going to happen? Beloved, since you are waiting for these days, be diligent to be found by him. What? Without spot or blemish and at peace. See, what lies ahead in, in our glorious resurrection also puts great responsibility on us each and every day as believers. If we truly believe that we are going to leave this world, if we truly believe that the words of Christ are true, and that one day our bodies will be transformed, they'll be perfectly united with our spirits to live out all eternity with God in heaven, Don't you think maybe our concern should not be consumed with this world? (laughs) If we really believe that. Maybe our concern shouldn't be so consumed with the earthly material goods we possess. But maybe we should be looking eternally. Maybe we should be looking to lay up treasures in heaven while we're here still on earth. Uh, The Lord said so much. Right In Matthew chapter 6, verse 20, I'll just quote this where you don't have to turn there. You can if you want. Matthew 6, verse 20, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on the earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But what? Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he ends that section in verse 21. He says, For where your treasure is, what? There your heart will be also. That is so true. And so the first practical issue here that Paul opens up chapter 16 with, after telling us all the stuff about the glories of heaven and the resurrected bodies and everything, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 to 4, we're going to read that, so I would ask you to stand in honor of God's word as we read these four verses, and then you can have a seat after we pray. But Paul writes there in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 4, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds as we look at this very practical issue of giving 
to the Lord's work. We thank you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I found in churches over the years, uh, the years I've been in ministry, that churches and pastors take one of two approaches to a passage like this. They'll go one of two ways usually. A lot of times, passages like this that are concerned with giving um, are moved through quickly. They just want to get through it. Uh, Almost like they're embarrassed to teach about it. And I can kind of identify with that. Uh, Sometimes it is hard to bring up certain subjects in Scripture. Um, I remember hearing a, a pastor telling a story where he had a, a visitor to his church. It was a smaller church, and they noticed the visitor. And, and um, it just so happened he was going through a book of the New Testament that dealt with giving. And so his subject matter for the morning was much of what we're going to talk about today. It had to deal with giving to the Lord's work. And he noticed after his message, the man left, and they never heard from him again. Until about a little over two years, he came back to the church. And it just so happened that the pastor was in a different book of the New Testament. But guess what he was dealing with? Some verses that had to do with giving. And he kind of saw the man there. And after his message on giving, the man ran up to him after the service down the main aisle and said, I knew it. You're one of those pastors. All you teach about is giving. And the pastor replied and he said, well, that's kind of interesting you say that because the last time I taught on giving was a little over two years ago. So that shows me that you haven't been here. And the man admitted, hey, yeah, I hadn't been here. Sorry. See, sometimes it's, it's awkward to speak about things like this. Um, but I think it's important. Um, a lot of people get upset. When you talk about giving to the Lord's work. A lot of people can't handle messages like this when it's dealing with giving or our own personal finances. Um, it's something people regard to as kind of very personal. It's, it's almost like a sacred cow. You don't just don't talk about it. Um, that's one view. People don't feel uncomfortable. They, they feel uncomfortable about it. They just want to rush through it. Another view, you see some churches that, that can't get enough of passages like this. That's all they want to talk about, is how much they need your money. And they're always begging for the people to give more and more and more. And some people, we've seen them on TV, we've heard them on the radio. Some of them use gimmicks to get people to give them their money. They say, hey, you know what, we're even willing to pray for you. If you'll just send that check for $100, we'll send you a prayer cloth. And we'll be sure to pray for you. Or maybe we'll send you a little vial of of specially uh, anointed holy oil. Or the worst one is always the little vials of water from the Jordan. (laughs) What a sham. They probably get it out of their tap in their office. But people buy into that. And there's a lot of garbage going out there peddling the name of Jesus Christ. Simply to acquire your money. And the reason they do that is because they want to continue their opulent lifestyles. A lot of these individuals live in multi-million dollar homes and drive very, very pricey cars. And don't just have one or two. They have three or four. They have a garage full. They have airplanes. They have all sorts of things. And yet they're on TV begging for your money. You think that common sense would set in. 
And a lot of times I'll just shout back at the TV, hey, sow your own seed. <laughs> you know, you got enough money to sow some seeds. Sow your own seed. Why are you trying to get my money? And people are turned off by this to the point where it actually causes them to lose confidence in the message of the gospel, in the message of Christ. Now, we have no qualms about teaching the message of God's word. We believe it to be the authoritative word of God. And so we want to look at this and we want to take a balanced approach. I don't want to be on either side of that. I want to take a balanced approach. I want to take an approach that Paul takes here in the New Testament so we can better fully understand what God actually says about giving. So I think the first thing here in your outline is realizing the importance of financial support. Realizing the importance of financial support. It is important. Um, Paul says so much in verse 1. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints as I directed. It was directed by the Apostle Paul that they take an offering, that they take a collection. That word, as I directed, diatasso in the original language, it's a military term. It, It means to instruct, to command. To arrange things in an order. Um, if you jump back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Just flip back there a couple pages. Paul uses this word. Same word, a different context. But the same word. He uses it quite a bit. This word directed. Diatasso. A lot of people look at Paul's teaching on giving here in chapter 16. And they say, oh, he's too soft. They don't like his approach. Because they're all dialed into the Old Testament and they, they tithe, the tithe, and you know, that's their, their mentality. Um, this is no soft approach that Paul is taking here. Um, he's basically telling this is, not a, this is not an option for the believer to give to the Lord's work. It's not an option. It's not some creative alternative for the wealthy who have money so they can get a tax break. This is really something that God wants from everyone who has come to him by faith. The psalmist directs us so in in Psalm 96, verse 8. He just says this, Ascribe to the Lord the glory, do his name, bring an offering, and come into his courts. Also in Psalm 116, verses 12 to 14, he says, What shall I render to the Lord for all of the benefits, for all of his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of his people. Or Proverbs 3, 9. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. See, the offering is not to be some phase of the service that's separated from the rest of the worship service. You know, we stop passing the plate simply because of the concern with the whole COVID thing. I mean, we didn't used to have just a box in the back. I like the idea of passing the plate, and we'll probably bring it back rather soon. Because you know what? It, 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 it lets you participate. And I think it's very important to do that. It's part of our worship. It's what we do. We give a portion of our income and the things that God has blessed us with. To help support his work. And here it was directed by Paul. Now back in 1 Corinthians, you find your place here. Look at verse 17 because he uses the same word directed in this thing. He's talking about marriage here. But he says, only let each person lead the life 
that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. And then he says this, look at the end. And this is my rule in all the churches. Same word, diatasso. This is my direction, he's saying. If you look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14, he uses the same word again. He likes this word. Verse 14 of chapter 9, 1 Corinthians, he says, In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. That word commanded is the same word, directed. Or in chapter 11, same book, 1 Corinthians, verse 34. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, he's talking about communion here, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And then at the end of that verse, he says this, about the other things, there's some other things I've got to share with you, but you know what? I will give you direction when I come. Same word. It's a military term. It's a command. Telling people to line up, be in rank, pay attention. Something's being said of them. And the reason why Paul pointed these things out and why he uses this this word is, is that because it's just that. It's a command from the Lord. It wasn't an option. A lot of people think, well, Paul's soft. Go back to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 16. He's soft here in the way he teaches this. There's a lot of people that want a very hard approach to giving. Um, They want to go back to the Old Testament economy. The way it was under Israel, with Israel. and, And put more pressure on people. And so people want a certain percent dictated to them what they should give. They want a certain amount dictated to them. Paul's not soft here. It may seem he is, but he's not. Because he's, he's very hard on the point that everybody should be giving something. He may not dial down on a percentage. And that's what's important to see here. So no, no matter what he says here, he's made it very clear that this was directed to them by the Apostle Paul, by a man of authority from the Lord. This wasn't his own opinion And it's kind of important, and it's applied to all the churches. Notice he says there, as I directed the churches. It's plural. Interesting thing, the word ecclesia, when you you see it in in the New Testament, sometimes it refers to a region of churches. Like here, it's plural. He's saying the churches of where? Galatia. But when he talks about the church of Corinth, it's singular. Meaning just that particular church. But the point is, is that he's applying this to everybody, not just the church here in Corinth, but everybody. And so it was directed by Paul. Secondly, not only was it directed by Paul, but it tells us here that it was disciplined as to the time. He says on verse 2 there, on the first day of every week, the first day of every week, it was disciplined when it was to happen. It wasn't a willy-nilly kind of a thing. And there's a lot of arguments about this passage. A lot of people say it means different things, and I'll explain that to you. Because they run into a problem here with that, that word week. The first day of every week, that word week in the original Greek is sabbaton, which is Sabbath. 
It comes to mean the, the Sabbath week as it's used by Jewish people. And so you could technically say, well, it means the first day of the Sabbath week. Now, the Sabbath is actually the seventh day. So that's where they get the translation, the first day of the week. As a Christian church, we celebrate on the first day of the week, not on the Sabbath. But there are a lot of people who actually believe that this passage is talking about the Sabbath day. And it's irrelevant, really, one way or the other. It doesn't make any difference to me. As long as you respond. As long as you do what God is telling you to do. And I think what he's teaching here is a discipline in our giving. That when we give to support the work of God, it ought to be uh, disciplined. It should be systematic. Not haphazard. Not an afterthought. Not just throwing a coin in the, the plate once in a while. After you hear some tear-jerking story. But rather a systematic approach. I remember one time we had a group of singers here. And they were actually imposters of another, of a quartet. I didn't know it at the time. And we had them here. And they said, well, you know, can we take a free, free will offering? Sure, no problem. And I only found out about a year later that they were uh, not really being above board with their dealings. But they were here as our guests, and they put on a wonderful concert. They could really sing. However, they didn't have a bass vocalist. I don't know how you have a quartet without a bass. But anyway, they showed up without the, the bass vocalist, which was a little unnerving to me. But they did still, they were amazing singers and, you know, pretty nice, personable guys. And I said, yeah, we'll take an offering. So we took an offering kind of in the middle of the conference, concert for him. And, and at the end, the, the leader gets up, and he goes, oh, I know, we already took an offering. And, and, and I'm looking at him like, what are you doing? <laughs> But, you know, we have this orphanage, and he starts talking about this, other ministries they support, and, boy, it would just be wonderful if we could, you know, take another offering. And I thought, well, wait a minute. What are you doing? Right? You could begin to see what was really at stake here. And so it's important that here he says, keep your giving disciplined, systematic. Don't let it just be based on what you hear in a sermon or whatever. Be obedient to the Lord's call. So it was disciplined as to time. Thirdly, it was designated to all. And this jumps back to verse 2 and even down a little further there. He says, so you also are to do. He points out you also, each of you. And it has the idea that it's all inclusive here. No Christian is exempt or excused. We're to be stewards of whatever the Lord has given to us, no matter how little or no matter how much. We are to be good stewards of it. And Jesus often, in the Gospels, you saw him observing people putting their offerings at the temple treasury. We see that throughout the Gospel. And he didn't discourage the poor widow who came with two small copper coins. He didn't say, oh, you don't have to give, ma'am. That's all you have. You don't have to do that. No, he didn't do that. I mean, she gave what what amounts to about a cent. And did he, he, he didn't, wasn't upset with the temple officials who were accepting money from someone who was destitute. Jesus never said, no, those people are excused. 
See, it's not based on what you have. His reaction was to use her generosity as a model for spiritual giving. He says this in Mark chapter 12, verses 41 to 44. He said, and he sat down opposite the treasure and he watched. Can you imagine if Jesus was watching when, you, when we took our offerings? Guess what? He is. <laughs> he is. He sat down opposite the treasure and he watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, verse 42, and a poor widow came and put in two copper coins, small copper coins, which basically a penny, a a cent. Verse 43, and he called his disciples to him and he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. What is that? That's faith. That's, that's a real step of faith by this woman. Our generosity to the Lord's work is best determined by what we give when we have little to give. A person who is well off financially can afford to give much without even affecting their lifestyle, their well-being. But you know what? A person who's poor, what are they doing? They have to give up everything in order to give something to others. I was always moved by when we were in India and these pastors were coming to hear the teaching that Sam and I were doing and They were coming from all over the hills and, you know, it's a small group of pastors, but they traveled like a long distance in the rain and the mud to get there. And uh, I remember uh, some of the ladies were saying, boy, you know, we don't know what to do because we don't know if we can come because if we come, we won't have enough because the trip will cost us some money to give to our church when we go back on Sunday. We won't have anything left. What should we do? I, I can't even conceive of that, right? I mean, we, we, we live in such um, a wealthy area here. We don't know what it means to go without. Um, Jesus said, if we're not generous when we have little to give, we will not be generous when we have much. Uh, maybe the dollar amount of the giving may increase, but guess what? Our generosity really won't. He said in Luke 16.10, He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. It was Winston Churchill that said this, We make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. And that is so true. That is so true. The meaning of life is to find your gift and the purpose of life is really to give it away. To serve others. So we see here that giving was directed by Paul. It was disciplined as to the time. It was designated to all. But it's also discretionary as to the amount. Some of you are getting excited. Okay, he's getting to the point where I want to hear what he teaches on this. Um, The third thing here about financial support was that it was discretionary as to the amount. And here's where some people, a lot of... uh, Leaders in churches get upset when it's taught the way I'm going to teach it. Look at what it says there in verse 2. 
It says, on the first day of the week, each one of you is to put something aside and store it up as what? What's it say? As he may prosper. As he may prosper. The original language here kind of has the idea of having success. Having good wealth come your way. But here, what Paul is saying is it's discretionary as to the amount. Notice, there's no percentage there. He doesn't say give 10%. He doesn't say, oh, you have to give this, this dollar amount. He says, as God has prom- prospered you. That's kind of the idea. Because we know that if we're being prospered in life, it has to come from God. It's a simple word. And it, it means very simply, you know what? You're in a good way. Things are going well for you, you might say. God has blessed you with maybe a little more, a little something more financially. So as God has done that, as God has blessed you, what is he saying? He's saying, be sure to bless others. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Because this deals with some of the heart issues that people have when it comes to giving. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And I want to go through this as clearly as possible. But a lot of people, when you talk about giving, you know what they ask? They want to know. Well, pastor, what should I do? What should I give? That's what they want to know. They're asking, well, how much should I give? And I hate that question. Because it's kind of a negative question if you ask it, think about it. Well, what's expected of me? <laughs> what, what should I do? I mean, I, I much rather the person that comes and says, hey, how can I help? <laughs> I'm excited. I want to bless the work of the Lord. I'd like it to be more positive. What can I do? Where are the needs? And there's a lot of issues here he covers in 2 Corinthians 9. But look at verse 6. He says, the point is, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. This is farmer's language. If you've ever understood farming, you will get this. It would just click. If you, layman's term, if you throw out a couple seeds, you're only going to get a couple plants. If you throw out an abundance of seed, you're going to have a bountiful reap, reaping of harvest. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. He says in verse 6. And then he says in verse 7, each one must give, and this is where it gets to the point here, as he has what? Directed, decided, excuse me, in his heart. As he has decided in his heart. So how is our giving? It's directed by Paul. It's disciplined to time. It's designated to all, but it's discretionary as to the amount. The word decided there in the original language, it's a compound word. And it means kind of decide beforehand. Don't wait to the last minute. When you come to give, don't be the kind of believer who's, you know, you're here in church and you're waiting to see, well, is this service worth me giving anything? <laughs> don't do that, he says. He says, plan it ahead of time before you even ever walk through the door. The Bible says each one must give as he has decided where? In his heart ahead of time. You've decided what you're going to give. And where do you do that? You do that in your heart. 
I think we have to understand something very clear um, about the Lord. Um, God is not broke. Okay, God does not need your money. He doesn't. He's not even the slightest needy. Not at all. I think sometimes we just don't understand this whole concept of giving. Reminds me of the story of a Protestant minister, a Catholic priest, and a Jewish rabbi. They were playing golf one day, Ken, out on the green, and they were out there, and they started to talk about their offerings. And they said, well, how do you guys do it? You know, I mean, you take up an offering, but, I mean, how do you get paid out of that? What, how, how does it work? And the priest says, well, uh, or the, the Protestant pastor says, you know, basically, we, it's pretty simple. We take up the offering, we draw a line on the ground, and then we throw the offering up in the air. And whatever lands on the right goes to the church. Whatever lands on the left comes to me. And the priest thought for a moment. And he goes, well, we do something a little similar. It's a little more spiritual. I think we draw a circle on the ground. And after we take up the offering, we throw it up in the air. And whatever falls in the circle, that's God's. And whatever falls outside of the circle, it comes to me, the priest. And the Jewish rabbi thought for a moment. And he says, well... We do something similar, but here's how we do it. We take the offering, we throw it up in the air, and we tell God, get, grab whatever you want, (laughs) and the rest is ours. Now, that sounds kind of silly, doesn't it? But sometimes I think our approach to giving can be just that silly. The Bible says here, as he may prosper. And you might say, well, wait a minute, what if I'm not prospering? What if everyone is not prospering? Well, keep reading. Verse 7, each one must be given as he has decided in his heart. And then it says, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Not reluctantly. Apparently, God is not excited about your offering when there's a reluctance to it. When you're counting it more of a pain than a blessing to give to the work of the Lord. That's not a blessing to God. And some of you might be relieved right now and you say, well, good, now I don't have to give it. That makes sense. That's sad if you're in that place. But he says, not only reluctantly, but he says under compulsion. I mean, how many giving programs have you heard in a church where it's, it's very uh, obligatory? And make you fill out little cards and make faith promises and do all this kind of stuff. And it turns it into what? In a duty. You're expected to give this much. And if you don't give this much, we don't think very much of you. And they, they, they just rail on that. We got to have it. You have to do it. And before long, that's the reason you're giving. Because you know you'll be reprimanded if you don't give enough. Let me, let me be very clear. In this church, I mean, I probably can count on maybe three fingers the times in the 24 years that I've been here, 23 years, that I've actually taught on giving. And it was always because it was in the text. And so it's very important to understand that, you know what, we just trust the Lord. When it comes to things like this. This is Christ's church. It's not ours. He can provide. 
And he does provide. And he has provided. And that's the, the blessed thing. When you, when you trust Christ, guess what? I mean, all this property, the house on Jeddah that we live, everything is debt free. We owe no man anything as a church. What a blessing that is. I don't say that in a braggadocious way. I'm bragging on God is what I'm doing. But what a good place to be in as a church. That we don't have to worry about paying someone else. Now, it's important to utilize what you have for the further furtherance of his, his kingdom and his glory in a smart way. And that's why we have a team of people who, who make up the finance team. And they, they help us with that. Ken and I have very little, very little. I have nothing to do with the finances. I don't know who gives what. I don't want to know who gives what. I don't have any ability to sign any of the checks. Ken does, but I don't. But it's, it's important to put together a team of people who can be trusted to do this and don't just leave it up to the pastor. And I thank God that that is not under my purview because it helps me focus on other things. See, we, we need to be reminded that, you know what, we, we, we are not a church that makes it compulsory for you to give. You give as the Lord directs you. Um, because he doesn't need your money. He's not broke. You should count it a blessing to be able to give to the work of God. Um, and it's not the amount of money that you're giving that is important to God. That's not the, that's not the important issue. Someone said, it's not how much you give, but how much you have left. It really matters as far as giving sacrificially. But he also says here that you should be cheerful about it. He says, not reluctantly or under compulsion. And then it says, for God loves a cheerful giver. That word cheerful in our English is the word hilarious. That's what the... That's what the Greek word actually is. They didn't translate it. It's the word hilarious. I don't know why they put cheerful here. I think maybe the translator said, well, he, he couldn't have meant hilarious. I mean, you think hilarious, you think kind of you know, slap happy. You're just doing things without thinking about it. But that's the actual word here. It's that you, you give in a hilarious manner. I mean, he could have used another word. God could have through the apostle to write this, but he didn't. He used that word hilarious. It has the idea that, you know what, you're not really even thinking about it. You're just so caught up. I mean, when the offering comes, man, you're just so excited to be able to give, to be able to part with some of your money for the Lord's work. That's really the idea. You're not out there with a calculator going, "Eh, how much can I afford? You're just, wow, this is a, what an honor to be able to give to the Lord's work. Now, some of you here this morning have engineering minds. Some of you have accounting minds. You have accounting backgrounds and and you're just losing it right now. You're like, wow, what is he saying, right? Um, Before you go down that road too far, I want you to see that some of you with that kind of mentality need a little more joy. In your giving. And not so calculated. 
Now, everything doesn't have to just line up on paper when it comes to the Lord's work. But it's important to have that joy of helping and giving something that's just hilarious. It's like you just can't wait to do it. Now, at the same time, I'm not telling you to be undisciplined in your giving. I'm not telling you to not keep records of your giving. I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is that something goes on in your heart when you give to the Lord that's far more important to God than the amount that you're actually giving. And you'd be, you could be giving tons and tons of money to the Lord's work, but if that thing is not right in your heart, guess what? It's all for naught. It's a waste. But you could be giving just a, a, a penny. But if it's right in your heart, that means all the world to God. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 8. And God is able to make all grace. That word grace means gift. Grace means to give. And so even gifts of money are called grace. He says, to make all grace abound to you so that all, having all sufficiency in all things, in other words, you'll have everything you need at times, at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, verse 9, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower And bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Verse 13, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all the others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. And then he closes off in verse 15 there and he says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. See, that's why we give, because God gave to us, is it not? What a beautiful passage. Now jump back to 1 Corinthians 16. And right about now, somebody's thinking, well, what's he, what's, what's he going to say about tithing? Tithing. Well, I'm going to say three things about tithing. First of all, we don't practice tithing here in our church because of the passage we just read. It says that you give as God directs you in your heart. But let's talk about tithing. First of all, tithing was practiced long before the Old Testament law ever came into being. Did you know that? Many years before. Tithing didn't come out of the law. For example, in Genesis 14, Abraham on one occasion, we don't know that he ever did it again, but he gave a tithe. He gave one-tenth of all the spoils that he had gotten in battle when he went and captured Lot and his family from the the, the five northern kings. And he gave a tenth of all that he took in that. And he'd seen this man, Melchizedek. We know him to be a priest. He met him. He was a priest and a king. And Hebrews 7 deals with this. It talks about this a little bit. We're not going to get into it, but I'll just say this. It, it, It says that the issue here is the greatness of the one he was giving to. 
That's what caused him to give, the greatness of the one he was giving to. And that's very important because when we give to the Lord, we should be thinking of the greatness of the one we're giving to. Not on our greatness, but of the one we're giving to. It recognizes what? Our submission to a great and holy God. And we begin to understand very quickly that all of our money, all our financial resources, all of our material possessions here on earth ultimately come from where? They come from God. It's very important that we know that. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And you say, well, you know what? I worked hard for that money. I made that money. That's, that's my money. Well, who gave you the ability to work hard for that job and to make that money? God did. It all comes from the Lord in the end. It's all the Lord's. He has just entrusted to some of us resources to be good stewards with. That's what he he has done. And just as quick as he maybe gave you resources, guess what? He can take them away. He can take them away. Job learned that, did he not? He was a a wealthy man, but he he basically lost it all. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, he said. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We need to be careful that our trust, as Paul said, is not in the uncertainty of our riches, but in the living God who gives us all things to enjoy. So here we have this problem about tithing. Well, Abraham did it, but also his grandson, Jacob, did it as well. But those are the only two occasions that we have before we come to the matter of the Jewish law being given out during the wilderness wanderings when they were Mount Sinai. They received God's law. So before Moses goes into the land, he's not able to. Joshua is going to take them in. But he gives what was called the second law. That's the meaning of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy means... Um, It means in Greek, second law, the second time. And it's in Deuteronomy where we learn that, wow, guess what? There were three tithes in the economy of Israel. Not just one. There were three tithes. Tithe is 10%. The first tithe that they were commanded to give, and there was no question about this, they had to give it, was to support the tabernacle of the temple and all the aspects of worship. 10% of everything they had went to that, period. But they also had a second tithe. And the second tithe was given to the Levites. And you say, well, why did they give any money to them? Why were the Levites important? That was the one tribe of Israel that had no land. They had no land to till. They they had no way to make money. And so God said, you know what? I'm I'm going to support them through this tithe. And they were to take care of the tabernacle and worship. And and even when the temple came, they were given charge of that. And there were priestly Levites and there were non-priestly Levites. There were people who were priests and people who weren't. But they were all involved in that process. And so God said, you know what? I'm going to tap into God's people and they're going to give another tenth to support you all. And then thirdly, there was also a third tithe. (laughs) If you want to talk about tithing. A lot of people say, well, I I give the tithe. Well, no, you really don't. 
I know what you're saying. You're saying you give 10%. But the tithe in the Old Testament was actually about 23 and a third percent. Because they had a third tithe that was given for the stranger in your midst. And it was spaced out over three years. So it wasn't every year, but it was every three years. And it was a built-in welfare system for everybody who had need, for the orphan, for the widow. And they were made to give this. So basically every Jew was giving a tithe of about 23 and a third percent of his income to the Lord. That's before we get to the offerings, by the way. Other income was figured by cattle, as corn, oil, things like that. I mean, they didn't always just have money. And a lot of people think, well, that's what we're supposed to do now. You know, you're, you're supposed to give according to the tithe, what the Old Testament says. Well, then break open your checkbooks. Because it's a lot more than 10%. So maybe you're not so interested in the tithe after all, are you? Yeah, let's get back to that other verse that says God directs in our heart. See, it's very important that we understand this biblically. We have to be careful about this. First of all, none of the tithing was an offering. None of it. It was a tax. Just like the IRS taxes us. They had a tax. Our tax is a little more than that probably, but that's what they did. Every man had to do it. And you know what? They used it for the caring of other people, the Levites and such, such. but still, it wasn't an option. But there were offerings on top of that. They had free will offerings. The word free will, the only time you find it in Scripture is when it talks about an offering, by the way. Even when they had to build the tabernacle. Remember what they did? They unloaded all this stuff, and Moses said... Stop. We have too much. We have too much stuff. You you people responded with too much stuff. We don't need all this. I mean, wouldn't that be interesting to hear one day in church? (laughs) We're going to take the offering and the treasurer stands up and says, Oh, you know, we don't need to take it. Matter of fact, we're going to give some money back to the people. You never hear that in church, would you? In some churches, maybe you should especially when they're in foreign fields. You see some churches in foreign mission lands and you have these poor people trying to support this great edifice of the church they built. They should tear down the church, sell the property, and give the the money to the people, I think. It's kind of crazy. But that's, that's what's important to understand about the tithe. King David really set the example when he came to build the temple with all the gold and and silver by the people. He set the example for the people. He gave like you can't believe. And he said, hey, anybody who's willing to this day consecrate all your stuff to God and help us with this project. And guess what? The people weren't, oh, no, here it goes. They were excited. They were like, wow, I can't wait. It says they rejoice and they praise God for the opportunity. They were so thankful to be able to give back to their God how he has so richly blessed them. See, now we're getting a little closer to what the New Testament says about giving. It's a very important principle. 
Well, it's directed by Paul, disciplined to time, quickly here, designated to all, discretionary as to the amount. In verses 3 and 4, he says here, it was delivered by responsible people. He says, I will send those whom you accredit. And you say, well, why why are they talking about going to Jerusalem here? To carry your gift to Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem was in dire need. Um, They had basically had a severe famine going on. Claudius Caesar expelled all the, the Jews from Rome and the Jews were blamed for it. And famine they had was very, very severe. They couldn't even feed themselves. And then you had Jewish believers who came to Christ. They were in Israel and Jerusalem as well. And so these original Messianic Jews uh, were really, really hurting. And Paul felt that. And he said, we need to take an offering for these people. They were having a hard time. So when he went among all the churches, they were predominantly Gentile and wealthy, Corinth and Ephesus, he would take up an offering. He'd say, hey, we're going to help out these other, these other people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 16, he says, But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace. They were giving an offering that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our good will. Verse 20, we take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers or apostles of the church, the glory of Christ. So it's very important that you have responsible people dealing with the monies that are collected for the Lord. It's not something to just willy-nilly, you know, okay, yeah, who wants to count the offering today kind of a thing. It's very important. There's accountability built in to that structure. And then the last thing here, it was designated to meet special needs. It says, for the collection of, for the saints, carry your gift to Jerusalem. Three things, quickly, to sustain other believers in time of need. That happened in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, I'm just going to read one verse here, but uh, there was not a needy person among them. They took care of their own. That's what we're called to do. That's why we have a deacon's fund. That's why we send money out to missionaries across the the, the globe that that have needs. Because we're called to, to do just that, not to just hoard it all here. James chapter 2 says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and some of one of you says to him, go in peace and be warmed and be filled without giving him the things that he needs for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead, he says. So we have offerings 
not just to pay the light bill, but to help. We've taken upon ourselves as a church to pay people's rent at times when they couldn't afford it. To help them with groceries, to do other things. That's what we're called to do. Secondly, to support the spiritual leaders. Galatians 6, 6 says, let, let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. 1 Timothy five seventeen. let the elders who rule well be considered of Worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. I thank God that I'm in a church that can support a full-time pastor. I served the Lord for many years in churches that couldn't, so I always had a part-time job. Usually a full-time job with a a part-time ministry. (laughs) Both were full-time, actually. So you were burning the the candle at both ends. But see, there's, there's something about that, and there's something about understanding that there's a cost to that. You know, sometimes people say, well, why don't you have an associate pastor? Do you know how much it costs for an associate pastor to live here? I mean, if you're willing to foot the bill, we'll bring one on right away. I'm more than happy to have an associate pastor that could help with youth and worship. But it's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take sacrifice. And then thirdly, to send workers who take the gospel to others. Romans 10, verse 14 says, How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe of him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear unless someone is preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're what? Unless they're sent. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You know, it it should be a very wonderful thing to recognize that we have the opportunity to give to the work of the God who saved us. It was John D. Rockefeller Jr. who said, think of giving not as a duty, but as a privilege. As a privilege. Uh, We really desire that we have a proper perspective on this. And God will continue to bless us as we do. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your clarity through the Apostle Paul on the teaching of giving. And, and Lord, I pray that each one that's gathered here would, would take it to heart. And Father, that we would be regular givers to the work of your ministry. We're not told a percentage. We're not told how much. That's between you and the giver. But Lord, it's very clear that all believers should be contributing to the work of the Lord in one way or another. And Father, we pray that you would, uh, if we're not, convict our hearts this morning. And show us firsthand what you desire us to give for the work of the Lord here in this church, in this much-needed area of the Bay Area. I know it's expensive to live here. It's a very wealthy area. And so, Lord, we pray that you would just help us to keep all these things in perspective. We pray this today that if there's any here who does not know you as their Lord and Savior, they haven't trusted you for the forgiveness of their sin, I pray, Lord, that you would do that work in their heart as only you can to draw them to Christ, to show them the enormity of their sin before a holy God and their need of a Savior because you provided that Savior through Jesus Christ. And I pray that they would be drawn to look to Christ, look to the cross, that they would turn from their sin to the Savior, that you would save them even here this morning. 
as they trust in you. And Father, we, we pray for our time across the way, the food that we'll partake of. Just pray that you bless it to our bodies and allow our fellowship and our time together as the body of Christ to be sweet. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We're going to close with that and uh, you're dismissed. God bless you.